Section 11 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Rees. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 12. Secondary Sexual Characters of Fishes, Amphibians, and Reptiles. Fishes. Courtship and Battles of the Males. Larger Size of the Females. Males. Bright Colors and Ornamental Appendages. Other Strange Characters. Colors and Appendages Acquired by the Males During the Breeding Season Alone. Fishes with Both Sexes Brilliantly Colored. Protective Colors. The less conspicuous colors of the female cannot be accounted for on the principle of protection. Male fishes building nests and taking charge of the ova and young. Amphibians. Differences in structure and color between the sexes. Vocal organs. Reptiles. Chelonians. Crocodiles. Snakes. Colors, in some cases protective. Lizards. Battles of. Ornamental appendages. Strange differences in structure between the sexes. Colors. Sexual differences almost as great as with birds. We have now arrived at the great sub-kingdom of the vertebrata, and will commence with the lowest class, that of fishes. The males of plagiostomous fishes, sharks, rays, and of chimeroid fishes, are provided with claspers which serve to retain the female, like the various structures possessed by many of the lower animals. Besides the claspers, the males of many rays have clusters of strong sharp spines on their heads, and several rows along the upper outer surface of their pectoral fins. These are present in the males of some species which have other parts of their bodies smooth. They are only temporarily developed during the breeding season, and Dr. Gunther suspects that they are brought into action as prehensile organs, by the doubling inwards and downwards of the two sides of the body. It is a remarkable fact that the females and not the males of some species, as of Raya clavata, have their backs studded with large hook-formed spines. The males alone of the capelin, Malotus villosus, one of the Salmonidae, are provided with a ridge of closely set, brush-like scales, by the aid of which two males, one on each side, hold the female, whilst she runs with great swiftness on the sandy beach, and there deposits her spawn. The widely distinct Monocanthus scopus presents a somewhat analogous structure. The male, as Dr. Gunther informs me, has a cluster of stiff, straight spines, like those of a comb, on the sides of the tail, and these in a specimen six inches long were nearly one and a half inches in length. The female has in the same place a cluster of bristles, which may be compared with those of a toothbrush. In another species, M. peronii, the male has a brush like that possessed by the female of the last species, whilst the sides of the tail and the female are smooth. In some other species of the same genus, the tail can be perceived to be a little roughened in the male, and perfectly smooth in the female, and lastly, in others, both sexes have smooth sides. The males of many fish fight for the possession of the females. Thus the male stickleback, Gasterosteus leorus, has been described as mad with delight when the female comes out of her hiding place and surveys the nest which he has made for her. He darts round her in every direction, then to his accumulated materials for the nest, then back again in an instant, 
and as she does not advance, he endeavors to push her with his snout, and then tries to pull her by the tail and side-spine to the nest. The males are said to be polygamists. They are extraordinarily bold and pugnacious, whilst the females are quite pacific. Their battles are at times desperate, for these puny combatants fasten tight on each other for several seconds, tumbling over and over again until their strength appears completely exhausted. With the rough-tailed stickleback, G. tracorus, the males whilst fighting swim round and round each other, biting and endeavouring to pierce each other with their raised lateral spines. The same writer adds, the bite of these little furies is very severe. They also use their lateral spines with such fatal effect that I have seen one during a battle absolutely rip his opponent quite open, so that he sank to the bottom and died. When a fish is conquered, his gallant bearing forsakes him, his gay colors fade away, and he hides his disgrace among his peaceable companions, but is, for some time, the constant object of his conqueror's persecution. The male salmon is as pugnacious as the little stickleback, and so is the male trout, as I hear from Dr. Gunther. Mr. Shaw saw a violent contest between two male salmon which lasted the whole day, and Mr. R. Buist, superintendent of fisheries, informs me that he has often watched from the bridge at Perth the males driving away their rivals, whilst the females were spawning. The males are constantly fighting and tearing each other on the spawning beds, and many so injure each other as to cause the death of numbers, many being seen swimming near the banks of the river in a state of exhaustion, and apparently in a dying state. Remarks that, like the stag, the male would, if he could, keep all other males away. Mr. Buist informs me that in June 1868, the keeper of the Stormont Field breeding ponds visited the northern tyne and found about 300 dead salmon, all of which, with one exception, were males, and he was convinced that they had lost their lives by fighting. The most curious point about the male salmon is that, during the breeding season, besides a slight change in color, the lower jaw elongates and a cartilaginous projection turns upward from the point, which, when the jaws are closed, occupies a deep cavity between the intermaxillary bones of the upper jaw. In our salmon, this change of structure lasts only during the breeding season, but in the Salmolycodon of Northwest America, the change, as Mr. J. K. Lord believes, is permanent, and best marked in the older males which have previously ascended the rivers. In these old males the jaw becomes developed into an immense hook-like projection, and the teeth grow into regular fangs, often more than half an inch in length. With the European salmon, according to Mr. Lloyd, the temporary hook-like structure serves to strengthen and protect the jaws when one male charges another with wonderful violence, but the greatly developed teeth of the male American salmon may be compared with the tusks of many male mammals, as they indicate an offensive rather than a protective purpose. The salmon is not the only fish in which the teeth differ in the two sexes, as this is the case with many rays. In the thornback, Raya clavata, the adult male has sharp pointed teeth directed backwards, whilst those of the female are broad and flat and form a pavement, so that these teeth differ in the two sexes of the same species more than is usual in distinct genera of the same family. The teeth of the male become sharp only when he is adult, whilst young they are broad and flat like those of the female. As so frequently occurs with secondary sexual characters, both sexes of the same species of rays, for instance, R. batis, when adult, possess sharp-pointed teeth, and here a character, proper to and primarily gained by the male, appears to have been transmitted to the offspring of both sexes. The teeth are likewise pointed in both sexes of R. maculata, but only when quite adult, 
the males acquiring them at an earlier age than the females. We shall hereafter meet with analogous cases in certain birds, in which the male acquires the plumage common to both sexes when adult, at a somewhat earlier age than does the female. With other species of rays, the males even, when old, never possess sharp teeth, and consequently the adults of both sexes are provided with broad, flat teeth, like those of the young, and like those of the mature females of the above-mentioned species. As the rays are bold, strong, and voracious fish, we may suspect that the males require their sharp teeth for fighting with their rivals, but as they possess many parts modified and adapted for the prehension of the female, it is possible that their teeth may be used for this purpose. In regard to size, M. Cabanier, as quoted in The Farmer, 1868, page 369, maintains that the female of almost all fishes is larger than the male, and Dr. Gunther does not know of a single instance in which the male is actually larger than the female. With some cyprodonts, the male is not even half as large. As in many kinds of fishes, the males habitually fight together. It is surprising that they have not generally become larger and stronger than the females through the effects of sexual selection. The males suffer from their small size, for, according to M. Cabanier, they are liable to be devoured by the females of their own species when carnivorous, and, no doubt, by other species. Increased size must be, in some manner, of more importance to the females than strength and size are to the males for fighting with other males, and this, perhaps, is to allow of the production of a vast number of ova. In many species, the male alone is ornamented with bright colors, or these are much brighter in the male than the female. The male also is sometimes provided with appendages which appear to be of no more use to him for the ordinary purposes of life than are the tail feathers to the peacock. I am indebted for most of the following facts to the kindness of Dr. Gunther. There is reason to suspect that many tropical fishes differ sexually in color and structure, and there are some striking cases with our British fishes. The male Calionomus lyra has been called the gemmeous dragonet from its brilliant gem-like colors. When fresh caught from the sea, the body is yellow of various shades, striped and spotted with vivid blue on the head. The dorsal fins are pale brown with dark longitudinal bands, the ventral, caudal, and anal fins being bluish-black. The female, or sordid dragonet, was considered by Linnaeus, and by many subsequent naturalists, as a distinct species. It is of a dingy reddish-brown, with the dorsal fin brown and the other fins white. The sexes differ also in the proportional size of the head and mouth, and in the position of the eyes, but the most striking difference is the extraordinary elongation in the male of the dorsal fin. Mr. W. Saville Kent remarks that this singular appendage appears from my observations of the species in confinement to be subservient to the same end as the wattles, crests, and other abnormal adjuncts of the male in gallinaceous birds, for the purpose of fascinating their mates. The young males resemble the adult females in structure and color. Throughout the genus, the male is generally much more brightly spotted than the female, and in several species, not only the dorsal but the anal fin is much elongated in the males. The male of the Cotus scorpius, or sea scorpion, is slenderer and smaller than the female. There is also a great difference in color between them. It is difficult, as Mr. Lloyd remarks, for anyone who has not seen this fish during the spawning season, when its hues are brightest, to conceive the admixture of brilliant colors with which it, in other respects so ill-favored, is at that time adorned. Both sexes of the Labrus mixtus, although very different in color, are beautiful. 
the male being orange with bright blue stripes, and the female bright red with some black spots on the back. In the very distinct family of the Cyprodontidae, inhabitants of the fresh waters of foreign lands, the sexes sometimes differ much in various characters. In the male of the Malianesia petinensis, the dorsal fin is greatly developed and is marked with a row of large, round, oscillated, bright-colored spots, whilst the same fin in the female is smaller, of a different shape, and marked only with irregularly curved brown spots. In the male, the basal margin of the anal fin is also a little produced and dark-colored. In the male of an allied form, the Xiphophorus hellerii, the inferior margin of the caudal fin is developed into a long filament which, as I hear from Dr. Gunther, is striped with bright colors. This filament does not contain any muscles, and apparently cannot be of any direct use to the fish. As in the case of the Callionymus, the males whilst young resemble the adult females in color and structure. Sexual differences such as these may be strictly compared with those which are so frequent with gallinaceous birds. In a siloroid fish, inhabiting the fresh waters of South America, the Plecostomus barbatus. The male has its mouth and interoperculum fringed with a beard of stiff hairs, of which the female shows hardly a trace. These hairs are of the nature of scales. In another species of the same genus, soft flexible tentacles project from the front part of the head of the male, which are absent in the female. These tentacles are prolongations of the true skin, and therefore are not homologous with the stiff hairs of the former species but it can hardly be doubted that both serve the same purpose. What this purpose may be, it is difficult to conjecture. Ornament does not here seem probable, but we can hardly suppose that stiff hairs and flexible filaments can be useful in any ordinary way to the males alone. In that strange monster, the Chimera monstrosa, the male has a hook-shaped bone on the top of the head, directed forwards, with its end rounded and covered in sharp spines. In the female, this crown is altogether absent, but what its use may be to the male is utterly unknown. Many other cases could be added of structures peculiar to the male, of which their uses are not known. The structures as yet referred to are permanent in the male after he has arrived at maturity, but with some blennies and in another allied genus, a crest is developed on the head of the male only during the breeding season, and the body at the same time becomes more brightly colored. There can be little doubt that this crest serves as a temporary sexual ornament, for the female does not exhibit a trace of it. In other species of the same genus, both sexes possess a crest, and in at least one species, neither sex is thus provided. In many of the Chromidae, for instance Geophagus, and especially in Cicla, the males, as I hear from Professor Agassiz, have a conspicuous protuberance on the forehead, which is wholly wanting in the females and in the young males. Professor Agassiz adds, I have often observed these fishes at the time of spawning when the protuberance is largest, and at other seasons when it is totally wanting, and the two sexes shew no difference whatever in the outline of the profile of the head. I never could ascertain that it subserves any special function, and the Indians on the Amazon know nothing about its use. These protuberances resemble, in their periodical appearance, the fleshy carbuncles on the heads of certain birds, but whether they serve as ornaments must remain at present doubtful. I hear from Professor Agassiz and Dr. Gunther that the males of those fishes, which differ permanently in color from the females, often become more brilliant during the breeding season. This is likewise the case with a multitude of fishes, the sexes of which are identical in color at all other seasons of the year. The tench, 
roach, and perch may be given as instances. The male salmon at this season is marked on the cheeks with orange-colored stripes, which give it the appearance of a labrus, and the body partakes of a golden-orange tinge. The females are dark in color, and are commonly called blackfish. An analogous and even greater change takes place with the salmo ariox, or bull-trout. The males of the char, S. umbla, are likewise at this season rather brighter in color than the females. The colors of the pike, Isox reticulatus, of the United States, especially of the male, become, during the breeding season, exceedingly intense, brilliant, and iridescent. Another striking instance, out of many, is afforded by the male stickleback, Gasterosteus layerus, which is described by Mr. Warrington as being, then, beautiful beyond description. The back and eyes of the female are simply brown and the belly white. The eyes of the male, on the other hand, are of the most splendid green, having a metallic luster like the green feathers of some hummingbirds. The throat and belly are of a bright crimson, the back of an ashy green, and the whole fish appears as though it were somewhat translucent and glowed with an internal incandescence. After the breeding season, these colors all change, the throat and belly become of a paler red, the back more green, and the glowing tints subside. With respect to the courtship of fishes, other cases have been observed since the first edition of this book appeared, besides that already given of the stickleback. Mr. W. S. Kent says that the male of the labrus mixtus, which, as we have seen, differs in color from the female, makes a deep hollow in the sand of the tank, and then endeavors in the most persuasive manner to induce a female of the same species to share it with him, swimming backwards and forwards between her and the completed nest, and plainly exhibiting the greatest anxiety for her to follow. The males of Cantharus lineatus become, during the breeding season, of deep leaden black. They then retire from the shoal and excavate a hollow as a nest. Each male now mounts vigilant guard over his respective hollow, and vigorously attacks and drives away any other fish of the same sex. Towards his companions of the opposite sex his conduct is far different. Many of the latter are now distended with spawn, and these he endeavors by all the means in his power to lure singly to his prepared hollow and there to deposit the myriad ova with which they are laden, which he then protects and guards with the greatest care. A more striking case of courtship, as well as of display, by the males of a Chinese Marcopus, has been given by M. Cabanier, who carefully observed these fishes under confinement. The males are most beautifully colored, more so than the females. During the breeding season, they contend for the possession of the females, and, in the act of courtship, expand their fins, which are spotted and ornamented with brightly colored rays, in the same manner, according to M. Cabanier, as the peacock. They then also bound about the females with much vivacity, and appear by l'étalage de leur vive couleur, chercher à attirer l'attention de femelles, lesquelles ne paraissent indifférentes à ces ménages, elle n'agient avec une molle lenture vers le males et semblant se complaire dans leur voisinage. After the male has won his bride, he makes a little disc of froth by blowing air and mucus out of his mouth. He then collects the fertilized ova, dropped by the female, in his mouth, and this caused Monsieur Cabanier much alarm, as he thought that they were going to be devoured. But the male soon deposits them in the disc of froth, afterwards guarding them, repairing the froth, and taking care of the young when hatched. I mention these particulars because, as we shall presently see, there are fishes, the males of which hatch their eggs in their mouths, and those who do not believe in the principle of gradual evolution might ask, how could such a habit have originated?
but the difficulty is much diminished when we know that there are fishes which thus collect and carry the eggs, for if delayed by any cause in depositing them, the habit of hatching them in their mouths might have been acquired. To return to our more immediate subject, the case stands thus. Female fishes, as far as I can learn, never willingly spawn except in the presence of the males, and the males never fertilize the ova except in the presence of the females. The males fight for the possession of the females. In many species, the males, whilst young, resemble the females in color, but when adult become much more brilliant and retain their colors throughout life. In other species, the males become brighter than the females and otherwise more highly ornamented only during the season of love. The males sedulously court the females, and in one case, as we have seen, take pains in displaying their beauty before them. Can it be believed that they would thus act to no purpose during their courtship? As this would be the case, unless the females exert some choice, and select those males which please or excite them most. If the female exerts such choice, all the above facts on the ornamentation of the males become at once intelligible by the aid of sexual selection. We have next to inquire whether this view of the bright colors of certain male fishes, having been acquired through sexual selection, can, through the law of the equal transmission of characters to both sexes, be extended to those groups in which the males and females are brilliant in the same, or nearly the same degree and manner. In such a genus as Labrus, which includes some of the most splendid fishes in the world, for instance, the peacock Labrus, El Pavo, described with pardonable exaggeration as formed of polished scales of gold, encrusting lapis lazuli, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, and amethysts, we may with much probability accept this belief, for we have seen that the sexes in at least one species of the genus differ greatly in color. With some fishes, as with many of the lowest animals, splendid colors may be the direct result of the nature of their tissues and of the surrounding conditions, without the aid of selection of any kind. The goldfish, Cyprinus aratus, judging from the analogy of the golden variety of the common carp, is perhaps a case in point, as it may owe its splendid colors to a single abrupt variation due to the conditions to which this fish has been subjected under confinement. It is, however, more probable that these colors have been intensified through artificial selection, as this species has been carefully bred in China from a remote period. Owing to some remarks on this subject, made in my work on the variation of animals under domestication, Mr. W. F. Myers has searched the ancient Chinese encyclopedias. He finds that goldfish were first reared in confinement during the Sung Dynasty, which commenced A.D. 960. In the year 1129, these fishes abounded. In another place it is said that since the year 1548, there has been, produced at Hangchow, a variety called the firefish, from its intensely red color. It is universally admired, and there is not a household where it is not cultivated, in rivalry as to its color, and as a source of profit. Under natural conditions it does not seem probable that being so highly organized as fishes, and which live under such complex relations, should become brilliantly colored without suffering some evil or receiving some benefit from so great a change, and consequently without the intervention of natural selection. What then are we to conclude in regard to the many fishes, both sexes of which are splendidly colored? Mr. Wallace believes that the species which frequent reefs, where corals and other brightly colored organisms abound, are brightly colored in order to escape detection by their enemies, but, according to my recollection, they were thus rendered highly conspicuous. In the fresh waters of the tropics there are no brilliantly colored corals or other organisms for the fishes to resemble, 
yet many species in the Amazons are brightly colored, and many of the carnivorous Cyprinidae in India are ornamented with bright longitudinal lines of various tints. Mr. McClelland, in describing these fishes, goes so far as to suppose that the peculiar brilliancy of their colors serves as a better mark for kingfishers, terns, and other birds which are destined to keep the number of these fishes in check. But at the present day, few naturalists will admit that any animal has been made conspicuous as an aid to its own destruction. It is possible that certain fishes may have been rendered conspicuous in order to warn birds and beasts of prey that they were unpalatable, as explained when treating of caterpillars. But it is not, I believe, known that any fish, at least any freshwater fish, is rejected from being distasteful to fish-devouring animals. On the whole, the most probable view in regard to the fishes, of which both sexes are brilliantly colored, is that their colors were acquired by the males as a sexual ornament, and were transferred equally, or nearly so, to the other sex. We have now to consider whether, when the male differs in a marked manner from the female in color or in other ornaments, he alone has been modified, the variations being inherited by his male offspring alone, or whether the female has been specially modified and rendered inconspicuous for the sake of protection, such modifications being inherited only by the females. It is impossible to doubt that color has been gained by many fishes as a protection. No one can examine the speckled upper surface of a flounder and overlook its resemblance to the sandy bed of the sea on which it lives. Certain fishes, moreover, can, through the action of the nervous system, change their colors in adaptation to surrounding objects, and that within a short time. One of the most striking instances ever recorded of an animal being protected by its color, as far as it can be judged of in preserved specimens, as well as by its form, is that given by Dr. Gunther of a pipefish, which, with its reddish streaming filaments, is hardly distinguishable from the seaweed to which it clings with its prehensile tail. But the question now under consideration is whether the females alone have been modified for this object. We can see that one sex will not be modified through natural selection for the sake of protection more than the other, supposing both to vary, unless one sex is exposed for a longer period to danger, or has less power of escaping from such danger than the other. And it does not appear that with fishes the sexes differ in these respects. As far as there is any difference, the males, from being generally smaller and from wandering more about, are exposed to greater danger than the females. And yet, when the sexes differ, the males are almost always the more conspicuously colored. The ova are fertilized immediately after being deposited, and when this process lasts for several days, as in the case of the salmon, the female during the whole time is attended by the male. After the ova are fertilized, they are, in most cases, left unprotected by both parents, so that the males and females, as far as ova position is concerned, are equally exposed to danger, and both are equally important for the production of fertile ova. Consequently, the more or less brightly colored individuals of either sex would be equally liable to be destroyed or preserved, and both would have an equal influence on the colors of their offspring. Certain fishes, belonging to several families, make nests, and some of them take care of their young when hatched. Both sexes of the bright-colored Crenilabrus massa and melops work together in building their nests with seaweed, shells, etc. But the males of certain fishes do all the work, and afterwards take exclusive charge of the young. This is the case with the dull-colored gobies, in which the sexes are not known to differ in color, and likewise with the sticklebacks, gasterosteus, in which the male becomes brilliantly colored during the spawning season. The male of the smooth-tailed stickleback, G. laerus, performs the duties of a nurse with exemplary care and vigilance during a long time, 
and is continually employed in gently leading back the young to the nest when they stray too far. He courageously drives away all enemies, including the females of his own species. It would indeed be no small relief to the male if the female, after depositing her eggs, were immediately devoured by some enemy, for he is forced incessantly to drive her from the nest. End of section 11